Um, we were going to pray, weren't we? Let's do it. Heavenly Father, please help us, we pray, as we read your word now. Amen. Um, I wonder how you first heard about the Christian faith, uh, about relationship with God, about coming to Christ. Uh, maybe it was from parents, maybe a Sunday school, maybe a beach mission. Uh, maybe you were in a, uh, an evangelistic rally with uh, someone like Billy Graham or uh, a prominent evangelist. It's interesting, when we think about the messages that people say to encourage us to respond to Christ, I think they typically go like this, that is, there's something that's wrong, uh, come to God and he will fix it. And uh, there's great truth in that, of course, that uh, coming to Christ will fix every problem that there is. But sometimes it's left people in confusion, it's left people disappointed because they may not appreciate that whilst God has promised an eternity where there'll be no pain, suffering, sin or death, we still have to live in this life for a time. And in this life, the Bible promises that there will be suffering, uh, there'll be trials, there'll be difficulties and it's not the case that in this life uh, you come to Christ and you'll be free from all sickness or that you'll be free from mental illness, or that you'll be free from uh, living in a society where there are all kinds of problems that everybody shares, but in coming to Christ and Christian community, there'll also be problems and struggles that are specific to those who will follow Jesus. And we should realise that. Uh, I've never heard a gospel presentation that says, come to Christ and suffer, except from Jesus himself. Jesus said, for those who want to come after me, they must take up their cross and follow me. And to take up your cross was not getting a pendant with a cross and hanging it around your neck. It wasn't a way of appropriating a religious symbol that made you part of a club. It was literally saying you need to be prepared to give up your life to follow Jesus. Uh, the Bible teaches this right through the New Testament. All those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Uh, it's given to people to not only believe in him, but to suffer for him. Uh, we are told that we should count it as joy to suffer for Christ. We're told to expect trials and temptations and difficulties in this life. And yet so often people seem unprepared when they come. Uh, back in 2011, I was diagnosed with uh, stage 4 lung cancer. It, it caught me by surprise, massively. In fact, I think it caught our whole family and everybody else, except for the fact that Fiona told me that she'd been preparing Bible studies on suffering. And so she was expecting that there would be suffering of some sort. It was a big surprise to discover it was going to be in our home and this, this health scenario. But there was a preparation through doing the Bible study on what the scriptures said about suffering. I'll tell you about some other friends of ours at their wedding, uh, which is... 26, 28 years ago now, they were given a book by Don Carson called How Long, O Lord? Uh, it's a book about how Christians are to persevere in the face of suffering. They thought it a pretty strange marriage gift at the time. Uh, how long, O Lord? Um, how long would this last? Uh, how long do I have to put up with him? All kinds of jokes you can make from that. But later in life, <clears throat> they experienced significant trials. Uh, they had a stillborn daughter, uh, they had a son who was uh, an Australian level athlete who collapsed thinking that he'd had a, had a serious heart problem. Um, they had a 17 year old who was diagnosed uh, with cancer and as they look back over these events they could see how 
reading how long, O Lord, in the early years of their marriage, had helped them to focus on God in the times of difficulty that were yet to come. Now, we don't know what it is that will come our way, but we should take God seriously at his word to know that there'll be difficulties just from living in this world and also difficulties from following after Christ. Uh, I don't know if you remember back um, a few years ago when there was cyclonic storms up around the area of Mission Beach and Dunk Island and, uh, and up around the Sundays. And the destruction that was being caused by these storms was incredible. We, we'd stayed a couple of times in Mission Beach and it was effectively flattened uh, by the cyclonic storms. Uh, and down in a part of the Sundays, where there are a whole heap of those boats that you can hire, uh, there was a woman who had 28 of these boats and 27 were destroyed. And I remember watching her being interviewed on the TV and uh, she, was, she was absolutely devastated at what had happened because she thought they'd taken serious, serious precautions. That is, they'd tied up the boats uh, very securely to the pier it's just that if you want to protect boats from a cyclonic storm, you don't tie them to the pier because the pier was destroyed. The boats were destroyed. 27 of her fleet, only one survived. What I understand, if you want to protect a boat in massive storm conditions, if you want a boat to survive in a tsunami, what you need to do is take it out to deep water and you need to anchor it in four directions so that no matter what happens, there's nothing it can hit and depending on where the weather is coming from and what the waves are doing, it'll be protected. We have an anchor for the soul. Hebrews 6 verse 19 says that we have an anchor for the soul and that is the hope that we have in Christ. And Romans 8 talks about that hope. And I want to uh, take us through this, particularly looking in this passage at what we see as a symphony of groans. Uh, if you've got the passage there, you'll notice that I've highlighted this word groan or groaning on three occasions. And I want to show you how this works. Here is God's provision for us in the midst <clears throat> of our suffering. Well, we're introduced, first of all, to a world that is in crisis. Let me recap with this paragraph from verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. The suffering here is all around us. Uh, it's suffering that is widespread. It's suffering that is common right through this world. And we're told here when we look at this that uh, the, the, the suffering is something that we share with Christ back in verse 17. Indeed, we need to share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Uh, we might be tempted to think that the Apostle Paul uh, was speaking from a theoretical standpoint when it comes to suffering. And if you're tempted to think that, I encourage you to read through uh, the book of Acts 
And I encourage you to read in particular his letter of 2 Corinthians. In chapter 6 and chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, he kind of gives a little catalogue of what he's been through. He says things like, I've been shipwrecked three times. And that's not the romantic shipwreck of, you know, Gilligan's Island. Uh, that's actually being dashed on rocks and being uh, worried about whether you're going to live. He says, I've received five times from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. 40 lashes was the maximum that could be given. And five times he was taken to the brink. He says, I've been stoned. Well, not stoned, stoned. He'd, he'd had rocks pelted at him, uh, coming within an inch of his life. He'd been imprisoned. He'd been beaten up. He'd been in, da in danger from all kinds of physical uh, things like rivers and, and uh, treacherous paths. He'd been in danger from bandits and the threat of being killed by people just to take what he had. Uh, he knew all kinds of suffering. He knew suffering that was just part of living in a world that's difficult and he knew suffering that was his specifically because he wouldn't deny Christ. So he's writing here from a position of credibility and authority and in fact there were times when he experienced suffering and prayed intensely that God would take it away. Uh, you may remember in 2 Corinthians 12 he talks about the thorn in the flesh and we don't know what the thorn in the flesh was. Uh, the, the way it's written makes it sound like it may have been some kind of physical ailment, uh, in which case he prayed uh, three times, he says, that God would take it away, and God didn't. So he had to live with it. Whatever it was, God left him to live with that. But it wasn't God punishing him. He, God says to him, my grace is sufficient for you. And so it actually leads him to trusting God. At the beginning of 2 Corinthians... He says, we were brought to the point where, where we really thought that we, we were done for. And there are some who suggest that he's in such despair that he's coming close to giving up on his own life, perhaps even taking his own life. But if it's not that, it's, it's that he's, he's at his absolute rock bottom and he says we had to be brought to that position so that we would learn to trust in the one who raises the dead. And out of that, he's able to bring comfort to others who are in the same circumstances. So Paul is a great case study in one who's endured the suffering of this world and endured the suffering of following Jesus. And what he says here is of great help to us. Uh, pick it up with me at verse 20. He says, For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. Um, this world that we are living in, this world that seems to be out of control, this world where we are constantly talking about climate change because we have an unprecedented use of the word unprecedented, um, God has made it this way. God has subjected the world to frustration. Uh, I, I can't go back and look at weather patterns over the whole of, of, uh, of the created world. I don't know if anybody can do that. But I imagine if we go back through time, there's been similar episodes where there's been climactic catastrophe after catastrophe. 
If not that, then there's been the human element of war. In fact, it's easier to speak of times of peace than it is of times of war because they are so few. It can measure, be measured in days, not in years or centuries. You see, this world has been subjected to frustration. How so? Well, we've got to go right back to the beginning to understand this. Because we have a man and a woman who think that they will do better running the world on their own terms. Adam and Eve turn aside from God and the result of that is God hands them over in the curse to a world that will be subjected to frustration. You want to make sense of this world by experiencing, by testing, by science, by exploration? Then go to the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, Solomon, the teacher, has every resource available to him and he explores every avenue to try and make sense of life. And what is his verdict? Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. Life is like a mist or a vapour. And then it's gone. See, death makes a mockery of everything. This world has been subjected to frustration. But notice, subjected to to frustration in hope it's not without hope in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 it says that as Christians we grieve but not like the rest of the world we grieve in hope because our hope is in the one who raises the dead and this world has been subjected to frustration in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. That is, God has planned something that is to happen. The revelation of his children. And in the revelation of his children, so the world will be restored to what God has intended for the world to be. But it will happen as a result of gospel transformation of his people and God's people being revealed. And so you get this picture here, this groaning picture, notice in verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Our creation groans. God's creation groans. And it groans in hope. So the image there is an important one. It's not groaning as in the pangs of death. It's not groaning without hope. It's not groaning in despair. It's not groaning with its last breath. It's groaning as in the pains of childbirth. I've never been through childbirth myself. Um, not many blokes in this room have, uh, as I understand. Um, but there'd be many women, I think, who could testify to the fact that the pain is endured because of the hope of what is to come. That is, there's a groaning in anticipation of new life. Well, that's the picture that Paul draws on. He, he's, he sees the creation as groaning in anticipation of new life, of restoration, of things being put right, of the world curse being lifted. And brought into the freedom of the children of God, that is a new creation with God's people enjoying what God has put right. So the world groans, the creation groans. But not only so, here's the next groan, not only so, but we ourselves, that is brothers and sisters in Christ, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, 
grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. See, not only does the creation groan in labour pains, but the people of God groan, Christians groan. It's a godly response. It's actually a work of the Spirit. And one of the things that we're going to see in the book of Exodus uh, this coming week, and we'll see it a few times, uh, and if we read on beyond Exodus, we'd see it again and again and again, is that the people of God grumble. Uh, they don't have to be out of Egypt for more than a day or two when they grumble to Moses that he's brought them out to die in the wilderness and weren't we better off? Hang on, weren't you slaves back there? They grumble. But what we've already seen is that they groaned and God listened to their groan and he's brought them, well he will bring them in the story, out to be his people and to worship him. And there's a groaning in the Bible that is appropriate. There's a groaning that is acceptable and good for God's people. And we know that because we're told here that, that the, um, we, not only so, verse 23, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly. Um, it's being affirmed here. Uh, it's the Spirit at work in us that we groan. See, it's right to lament the fact that this world is suffering. It, it, it's right to weep with those who weep. It, it's, it's right to long for things to be put right. It's, it, it, it's so appropriate that we, we're so devastated to hear of the life that Derek has lived for the last 15 months. It, it's not right. It's not the way it should be. It, it's not the experience of the full promises of God where healing is complete and everything's restored. It's right to groan and to look for things to be better. It, it's not simply the world that groans, but Christians groan. It's a godly response. The Spirit dwells in us and we groan inwardly as we wait for our adoption. And, and notice this, that... that um, this is not fatalism. Uh, this is not saying that suffering is particularly good. It's saying that it's right to long for an end to suffering. So whilst we are to expect suffering in this world and whilst we are to expect suffering for following Jesus, it's right to long for the suffering to be over. The, the spirit in us is at work in this and we hope for something better we hope for a better future um, you look at scriptures that talk about the way that things will be after the return of christ you get the wonderful imagery for example in revelation 21 and 22 with the lion lying down with the lamb with there being no more more mourning or or tears or death where, where things are in harmony, where, where things are enjoying the peace and the grace of God. It's, it's something that is right to groan as we look forward 
in hope because we don't yet have it. Um, things are not the way that God ultimately intends them to be. So we groan in hope and, and the hope is what keeps pushing us forward. Who hopes for what they already have? But we hope for what we do not yet have and we wait for it patiently. See, it's a fruit of the Spirit, patience. We, we, we are living patiently in the face of, of and the experience of suffering as we look forward to what God has planned. And we have the first fruits of that already. We have the Spirit. See, the Spirit who dwells within us is actually a taste of what is to come. God comes and dwells within us to be with us in the context of suffering. God is not a, a helicopter parent. Well, sometimes he is. But typically, he just stays with us in the pain and helps us through and keeps our focus on what is yet to come. And so we pray, um, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. So we pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who is in heaven... Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. We actually look forward to something better. And God in the midst of this provides us with spiritual help. And this is where we see the third of the groans. So we've got creation groaning. We've got God's people groaning. And now we see the spirit groaning. Look in verse 26. In the same way, the spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Um, this passage, as you can see, it's a, it's a symphony of groans. Creation, Christians, the Spirit himself... What we have, I take it in these verses, is the extraordinary kindness of God. God knows what it is for us to live in the midst of pain and suffering and difficulty and struggle and longing for something to be put right and made better. And he helps us in the midst of this. We don't know what to pray for. And sometimes we just struggle to pray altogether. And some situations are too difficult to know what to put into words. And we have the promise here that the Spirit intercedes for us through wordless groans. Now, I misread this verse for some time. I used to think that this verse was saying that there'll be times when... I've us I usually know what to pray is what I thought, but there'll be times when I don't and then the Spirit will work it out for me. But that's not what it's saying. Let's read it. It says, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. It doesn't say sometimes we don't know what to, we ought to pray for. It actually says we do not know what we ought to pray for. In other words, it's reminding us that we're not God. We don't have the big picture. We don't know all the intricate details of what God is doing. But the Spirit does. And the Spirit intercedes. That means, yes, I can have confidence when I just don't know how to pray for somebody or what to pray in a situation, that God will be at work by his spirit. But it also means that I can have confidence when I think I do know what to pray 
that the Spirit will intercede. Isn't that wonderful that God will make our prayers effective? We don't have to be clever in prayer. We don't have to be super intelligent, far thinking, broadly read, well experienced, erudite people. No, God will be at work. The Spirit will intercede through wordless groans. And not only that, but the one who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. So not only will the Spirit uh, groan for us and intercede for us in this way, but because the Spirit of God knows the will of God, it will make our prayers according to God's will. Wow. That makes prayer effective, doesn't it? It's, it's not us that makes prayer effective. It's God. And he's guaranteeing it by his Spirit. See, there are many great reasons to pray. But this passage is telling us that in the midst of a world that is painful and difficult, where there's struggle, where it's hard being a follower of Jesus, there is good reasons to pray in confident hope that God will work out his good purposes in what's going on. He will intercede for us according to God's will. Now listen again to verse 17 in the light of that. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Just reading that verse on its own could seem like a heavy burden, like a lonely curse that we have to share in the sufferings of Christ. But reading that verse in the light of what we read after it is an incredible privilege because we get to share in Christ's sufferings with the full support of the Spirit of God on our behalf in order that we may share in his glory. See, that is the way of Christ. Suffering led to glory. And that is the way of those who follow after him. Suffering will lead to glory. But we don't do it alone we can have the confidence and it's a wonderful confidence that verse 28 we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who've been called according to his purpose see God is good and God is powerful and he is at work in the midst of our pain and our difficulties to work within us by his spirit, that which is according to his will. And so we persevere in suffering. We groan with the creation. We groan with the spirit of God. We trust in God, knowing that God's spirit will make our prayers effective. And God is for us the anchor for our soul. We can be full confident in God's good purposes. See, as Christians, we will suffer. Um, and if you haven't yet, uh, be careful. <laughs> it will happen. Some of it will be the suffering that your next door neighbours and anybody else might experience. Some of it will be unique to you. 
And we don't suffer without hope. We grieve, but we don't grieve without hope. We will die, but we don't die without hope. We have the confident promise of God that he will be at work in everything for the good of those who love him. And we're going to explore this more thoroughly tomorrow. We're going to spend quite a bit of time just on a few verses as we look at this tomorrow. But the gospel of the death and the bodily resurrection of Jesus changes everything because it grounds our certain hope. It gives us an anchor in the face of the storm. You see, if Christ wasn't risen from the dead, then we're to be pitied just like everybody else. There is no hope. But we believe that he was, and in the resurrection of Christ, there is our hope too. And so I want to ask you, as we look at this together, what are you looking to for your hope? Where, where do you turn to when things are difficult? Now, God, I think, provides for us in all kinds of ways. If you're married, you might turn to your spouse. You might turn to your children, to your parents, to your siblings. You might turn to your neighbours. You might turn to a specialist. You may go to a doctor. You may go to a psychologist. You may go to a financial planner. You, you may seek help from the government. You may gather together with friends, people at church. God provides all kinds of help and hope for us. But if we ask the question deeply and seriously, where is our hope, then it ultimately will only fully come by God's work in us and for us through Christ and by his Spirit. That's where we need to turn. When I reflected on the hope that I had as somebody enduring cancer, I found great comfort and encouragement in the fact that the medical advances that were there for me were hitting their peak just at the right time for me. I was so encouraged by what was available to me. I was encouraged by Fiona and family and friends and their support for me. I was encouraged as I started to see things that could be done and, and reasons to get up in the morning and things to do. But those hopes can never sustain ultimately in the face of living in a world that has been subjected to frustration, a world where we face death and judgment. The only hope that will see us through into eternity is the hope that comes through Jesus, applied by God's Spirit into our hearts and minds. So let's thank God for that hope. Our Father, we do thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your strength that comes in knowing that you are at work in everything for our good. Uh, we thank you that you have acted in Christ to reverse the curse, uh, to um, prepare for uh, a new birth of a new creation. We thank you that in your kindness you promise to be with us and stay with us and work 
uh, in our hearts and our minds, in our lives by your spirit. And so, Father, we ask that you'll make it our first thought to turn to you, uh, that we'll appreciate the, the privilege that it is to be able to pray and the wonderful provision that you give us to intercede by your spirit on our behalf. So please take our prayers, um, answer according to your will, enable us to persevere, to be patient and to have hope in Christ for all eternity. Amen.